I'm sorry, but can you boil this down for me in an easily digestible Star Wars metaphor? Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elpstrom. The story of Texas independence is almost always told from the perspective of the victorious Texans. Comparatively few academic studies have looked at the experience at the other side of the conflict. However, in some ways the experience of the Mexican armies in Texas is as revealing to the story of Texas independence as that of Sam Houston's army. Today we take a look at the story of El Mar de Lodo, the Sea of Mud. But first, what's your favorite Texas taco? Um, I'm not a super taco connoisseur, but uh, in recent memory, some of my favorite tacos have been at a local eatery here called uh, Senor Locos. Um, they have a whole menu of street-style tacos uh, from carne asada to uh, some delicious fish tacos that uh, I can't get enough of. Mm. I actually like a uh, place. It doesn't even have a name, really. It's just a taqueria uh, over on in Plano on, I believe, Avenue K and uh, Spring Creek. But they have some delicious barbacoa tacos that are amazing. And they even I even tried a lingua taco, but didn't like the tongue very much. But still, good stuff. Authentic. Bar- Scary authentic. Barbacoa. Well, barbacoa. Know, I'm going to throw it out there. It's a Texas chain. It's a new restaurant started in 2009, I believe, by a local Austin restaurateur. And that's the uh, delightful Torchies. Torchies Tacos. I like their uh, logo. I like their style. Um, and they're just kind of fun. Yeah, that's hippie tacos. That's not real tacos. People's Republic of Austin has spoken, Sean. (laughs) (laughs) History is a collection of stories, and these stories contain fact, fiction, fable, and myth. The job of a historian is to somehow sift through those stories looking for the truth as best as you can find it. Many, if not most, of these stories are told by the victors of the conflict. The vanquished seldom get to have their say in court. But... If their story is told at all, it's usually told in a distorted way that it seldom resembles the truth. The retreat of the Mexican army from San Jacinto is just one such story. Outside of the journals and memoirs of some participants, few histories have looked at this time when Mexican forces who, despite defeat and the loss of their leader, still enjoyed a numerical superiority to the Texan rebels. Yet they were forced to abandon Mexico's rebellious northern province and return home. This story was relatively unknown until archaeological studies were done to shed light on the other side of Texas independence. There's no question that the Battle of San Jacinto was a stunning victory for the Texian forces. Santa Ana had hand-selected the troops for the battle from all the elements of his forces, the best that Mexico had to offer. His army had defeated every group of Texans that it encountered, wiping out the garrison at the Alamo and forcing the surrender of the largest Texan army at Goliath. General Sam Houston's army, and practically the entire Anglo population of Texas, was careening eastward in flight from the victorious Mexicans. Whether it was hubris, ego, politics, or something else entirely, Santa Ana decided to end the rebellion himself with a decisive victory over Houston's troops. As we discussed in our two-part series on Santa Ana, it was a combination of all those things that drove this complex character. 
Regardless of his motivations, Santa Ana sprinted ahead of his spread out forces in pursuit of the certain victory over the rebels. What Santa Ana didn't realize was that while his victories had instilled fear in the Anglo-Texans, his bloodthirsty actions in executing the prisoners of Goliad had also instilled them with fury and a desire for revenge. The Texans would make their stand against the dictator, but only on the ground of their commander's choosing. That place was the marshy ground of San Jacinto. The battle itself was certainly a decisive victory, but obviously not the one that Santa Ana envisioned. The Mexican army was decimated at San Jacinto as the infuriated Texans achieved total surprise and literally slaughtered their foes. Of Santa Ana's army of 1,300, over 600 were killed and more than 500 were wounded or taken prisoner, including Santa Ana himself. Only a handful escaped. Just nine Texas fighters died in the battle, and another 30, including Houston, were wounded. But as decisive as the victory was for the Texans, what many people don't know is that there were anywhere between 4,000 and 6,000 more Mexican troops spread throughout Texas. Now, most of these were in garrisons or along the Rio Grande, but nearly 3,000 were within a few days' march of San Jacinto. The Texan army, now commanded by Secretary of War Thomas Rusk, had around 900 men. Now, while there were more rebel volunteers on the way from the United States, the remaining Mexican troops remained a real threat to the New Republic. What happened to those soldiers, and why were they unable to regroup and wipe out the Texan army? According to author and archaeologist Dr. Greg Dimmick in his book Sea of Mud, while the Battle of San Jacinto played a key role in obtaining Texas independence, two major factors played a critical role in securing it, politics and nature. There were four major Mexican armies still active in eastern Texas at the time of the Battle of San Jacinto. Around 800 men under General Antonio Gaona had been dispatched north of Santa Ana's army and were headed up the old San Antonio Road towards Nacogdoches. As Santa Ana chased after Houston, he'd ordered Gaona to turn back south, but Gaona had somehow gotten himself lost. He wound up too far south at the now burned-down town of San Felipe. Another small force, around 500 men, under Joaquin Ramirez y Sesma, were not far from Santa Ana and had been preparing to reinforce him on April 22nd before finding out about the Texan victory. Around 1,000 men of Santa Ana's rear guard and supply train, marching under the command of General Vicente Filosola, were camped at the Brazos River, which was about 40 miles west of San Jacinto, near Old Fort Bend. Finally, the largest force of Mexicans, between 1,200 and 1,500 troops, were headed north from Goliad under General Jose de Urea, the victor at San Patricio, Refugio, and Goliad. Filosola spent April 22nd and 23rd repositioning his troops southwest from Old Fort Bend to Eleanor Powell's Tavern on Turkey Creek, near where Urea was camped. There they began building temporary fortifications and waiting for stragglers and news of the battle. The first word came from a battlefield dispatch from San Jacinto and arrived at Filasola on April 22nd. Next to arrive was Captain Don Miguel Aguirre, and he was accompanied by a handful of dragoons. They told Filasola about the defeat and loss of troops. Over the next two days, stragglers arrived and greatly exaggerated the magnitude of the defeat. None of them seemed to know the fate of Santa Ana, which caused Filasola to hesitate, waiting for more information. Finally, Filosola received a letter from the now-captured Santa Ana which stated, Yesterday evening we had an unfortunate encounter. This understatement of Santa Ana confirmed that Vicente Filosola, as Santa Ana's executive officer, 
was now commander-in-chief of all the Mexican armies in Texas. He had to figure out what to do next. The following day, Urea received what he characterized in his diary as a, quote, mysterious <laughs> executive order to immediately join Filosola's force. Urea may have found the order mysterious because he had previously marched through the Gulf Coast, winning battle after battle, so his men's spirit was very high. They didn't know about the loss at San Jacinto or the loss of Santa Ana. Urea and his troops arrived at the campsite around midnight on April 24th. On April 25th, General Filosola called a meeting of his generals to discuss movements going forward. At the time of the meeting, Filosola had 2,573 men under his direct command. Additionally, there were 1,000 men, many of whom were wounded under the command of General Ardande in San Antonio, and another 500 to 1,000 scattered about Texas. At the War Council, Urea urged that the campaign continue as they still held the clear advantage in numbers. His men were eager to continue the fight to defend Santa Ana and Mexico's honor. But General Filosola wasn't so sure. He feared that continuing the fight would jeopardize the 500 Mexican prisoners of war currently in Texan hands, as well as threaten the fate of the captive Santa Ana. This would be an important political consideration for Filosola in his decision-making. More important, though, Filosola was concerned about the condition of the remaining units. Urea's armies were among the very best Mexican troops, but most of Filosola's army, making up the rear guard, were the least trained and experienced troops. They also included the wounded troops from March's battle at the Alamo. He was very concerned that his army was in no real condition to fight the victorious Texans. In addition, most of his force were not soldiers at all. Mexican armies of the day traveled not just with soldiers, wagons, mules, ammunition, and artillery pieces, but also with additional people that were almost as numerous as the troops. Entire families, women and children, often followed their soldiers into battle, and this complicated matters significantly. Filosola, describing the condition of his troops in his diary, wrote, At least three-fifths or one-half the number of our soldiers were squadrons composed of women, mule drivers, wagon train drivers, boys, and settlers, a family much like the locusts that destroyed everyone in their paths. These people perpetrated excesses difficult to remedy, and naturally all hatred fell on the army and the men who commanded it. Even when it is explained to this rabble that their behavior interferes and gives the enemy the upper hand, they refuse to refrain from their behavior, even when it means they are helping the enemy to win the battle. Instead, they become recalcitrant and slip into the battle lines and steal from the wounded and dead, and they encourage their kinsmen to follow their example. The men, instead of fulfilling their duty and holding their rank, fall back and participate in the looting. Ah, the joys of 17th and 18th and 19th century combat. Yeah, and that word in there, sutlers. Uh, sutlers were civilians who followed the army and sold food and other provisions to the soldiers. Right. So uh, imagine a, a band of merchants following the army around that uh, yeah. sold them snacks and and stuff. Yeah, they didn't. They didn't really have quartermasters to to take care of the food and everything. And every like I said, like it says, everybody brought their families with them to war, because that's yeah. what you should do: is bring your families with you to war. Sure. So, while there were around 3,000 soldiers, there were maybe just as many camp followers and civilians following them who had to be fed and supplied themselves. The army stayed in place for several days, expecting even more stragglers from the Battle of San Jacinto to show up because they didn't realize that Santa Ana's entire force had been killed or captured. Vilasola eventually decided that they must obey Santa Ana's orders. At the very least, they would move towards the Atascacita Crossing on the Colorado River, northwest of their present position. 
Then they would proceed southwest to Victoria to await orders from the Mexican government. At Victoria, not far from Goliad and the coast, they could regroup, maintain a defensible position, gather intelligence about the enemy, link up with the garrisons at San Antonio and Goliad, and then determine their next move. Rather than a retreat, as it has always been described, it was a movement called a retrograde, a repositioning of the troops to a more advantageous position until they could gather more intelligence and determine what to do. They moved the next day. Truthfully, this movement, and indeed the overall decision to retreat, was a sound military tactic. Filisola knew about the danger facing the Mexican army better than anyone. He'd been in, char he'd been in charge of Santa Ana's logistics since they left northern Mexico. It's a military reality that the further an army advances, the longer its supply line gets. At the same time, the enemy's supply line gets shorter. Filisola's troops were about as far away from their source of supply as they could get, and it was already been and it had been already been difficult to get provisions. The situation was made worse by the effectiveness at the time of the Texas Navy in securing the coastline so that they couldn't be resupplied by water. In fact, it had been captured dispatches from Filisola about the difficulties of keeping Santa Ana supplied that helped prompt Houston to attack at San Jacinto. Now, politics also played a role in the decision to retreat. An Italian by birth, Filisola had been a soldier in Mexico for 25 years since the days of colonial Spain. He initially sided with Itrebidi, but when the short-lived emperor lost power, Filisola switched sides and became a Republican. He knew very well the constantly changing fortunes of Mexican politics, and he knew that Santa Ana wasn't someone who could truly be counted down and out. Even though he'd been captured by the Texans, he'd come back before. There's nothing to say he wouldn't come back again. Historian Will Fowler, in his recent examination of Santa Ana's political career, suggested that Filisola would have to consider what would happen to him if he failed to follow Santa Ana's orders, and then Santa Ana came back into power. Urea was just the opposite of the sophisticated, urbane Filisola. He was a native Mexican, born to a colonial soldier in what is now Tucson, Arizona. He'd been a soldier since he was 20 and rose steadily through the ranks. He was a hard-riding, highly effective cavalryman who'd eventually found himself in service to Santa Ana, though he often disagreed with the dictator's harsh tactics. Fowler suggests that by 1836, Santa Ana considered Urea to be a threat to his own popularity. He may have sent Urea out on his own with the tougher task of facing the more powerful Texas force at Goliad, while Santa Ana himself took on the vastly inferior garrison at the Alamo with a much larger army. When Urea was able to capture the Goliad force almost completely intact, Santa Ana ordered Urea to disregard the terms of surrender he'd offered to Commander James Fannin and execute the Texans immediately. Again, this may have been to partially discredit Urea and besmirch his honor. Urea passed along the responsibility of carrying out the orders to execute the prisoners to his subordinate, but in his journals and discussions with his staff, he disagreed with the order and the action. Unfortunately for the Mexicans, nature would also intervene to destroy both the morale of the troops and their fighting ability, turning a retrograde movement into a retreat to Mexico that was described by screening Texas scouts as a hapless, pell-mell route by the disorganized and defeated Mexicans. On April 26, it started raining. It was a torrential downpour that lasted for days. Even longtime Texans and Tejanos say they'd never seen rain like that before or since. Rivers and streams quickly overflowed their banks and spread out through the low-lying areas, making life miserable for the Mexican troops, and it made movement almost impossible. But that rain filled those caves at San Jacinto right up. 
dangerous rain. <laughs> hey, how come there was no rain then in uh, Texas Rising? Yeah, I don't know. When they were chasing after uh, uh, Emily West? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hey, yeah. It Nobody. should have been raining. <laughs> it should have been pouring rain. Texas if, if was Neil, independent, sunshine all the if time. If Neil deGrasse Tyson can get pissed off about the stars being wrong in Titanic, I can get pissed <laughs> off about there not being enough rain in Texas Rising. All right. A Mexican officer under the command of General Urea wrote, Between 11 and 12 in the morning, rain began to pour, continuing heavily until nightfall when we had made a halt. The rear guard, protected by General Urea with a reserve brigade, had not yet arrived when it began again and continued through the night without interruption and consequently without any rest for us. For two days, it continued to rain. Each day, movement became more difficult. The sick and wounded began dying, and equipment was scattered everywhere as the troops slogged their way through knee-deep mud. The conditions were so bad that Filisola later described it as a, quote, sea of mud that magnified the misfortunes of his army. By April 29th and 30th, the agony of the Mexican army reached its peak. Regarding the conditions that they were dealing with at the time, a Mexican officer wrote in his diary, Today I had to dismount singing up to my knees in the mud, falling and getting up, finally losing my boots and continuing thus. We walked no more than 30 or 40 paces before the soldiers had to help pull out the artillery pieces, an extremely exhausting chore since they were poorly nourished. And much time was lost in this way. Between five and six in the afternoon, when we had traveled five or six miles at most, each corps camped as best as it could, and likewise the commanders and officers for conditions were beyond discipline. All around, one could see groups a distance one from the other. The artillery remained stuck up to the axles two or three miles away from the point of departure. The loads of ammunition, provisions, and equipment were left scattered along the road, and the individual who at great sacrifice was able to bring up his corresponding equipment found it useless. Many loads were lost, many mules were ruined, and the troops could not have messed because it never reached them, nor was there any wood to prepare any if it had. It is difficult to describe our march on this day. It was a complete disaster. It was the most remarkable thing anyone in the Army had ever seen, and the reactions from veterans and young officers alike ranged from incredulity to disgust. Filosola later wrote that he'd never seen anything like it in 30 years of service. When he looked out and observed, quote, men, animals, cannons, all that can be named, were floating in a sea of mud. We did not doubt for a moment that the mules were sunk in the mud up to their cargo. This alone prevented them from disappearing. Huge amounts of supplies had to be abandoned just to rescue the animals and preserve at least the cannon and the ammunition. Filosola himself was thrown from a horse into a creek, and Urea's diary later reported that they'd had to leave behind some of the sick and wounded to die. Between April 25th and May 9th, nearly two weeks, the Mexican army marched from Powell's Tavern on the San Bernard River to Atascacita on the Colorado River, a distance of 20 miles. By the time they reached the Colorado, the spirit of the soldiers was broken and the nerves of the officers were frayed. They had left behind precious supplies and found themselves in a worse defensive position than they had been on the day after San Jacinto. Around 300 Texas cavalry had easily made it through the rain on May 1st to shadow their retreat, but neither side acted with any hostility toward the other. What's more, on April 27th, a courier brought news to Filisola from Santa Ana that he'd surrendered to the Texan government and ordered all Mexican armies out of Texas, confirming that further hostile acts by Mexico would endanger all the prisoners. 
The news didn't hasten or delay the retreat to the Colorado, but it played a part in future events. On May 9th, Filasola's army continued to head towards Victoria, but the writing was on the wall that he intended to obey Santa Ana's orders to abandon Texas. Urea, first privately to his officers, and eventually to Filasola himself, began grumbling about the entire retreat, calling it a mistake and a disgrace. This would very quickly turn into a personal feud between the men and would color the history of this part of the Texas Revolution. Urea ended up threatening to return to northern Mexico, leaving a subordinate in command of his division rather than face the ignominy of further retreat. There was also a considerable amount of slanderous talk from junior officers who wanted to stay and fight and were disgusted by the retreat. On May 14th, commissioners from the Texas Republic arrived under a flag of truce bearing word that Santa Ana had signed the Treaty of Velasco, granting Texas's independence and once again ordering Mexican troops out of the country. Filasola again was confronted with the orders from his commander and a lack of guidance from Mexico, and he decided to finally act. His records of the situation he was in are remarkably detailed. While he had over 4,000 men in his command and was well supplied with ammunition and arms, he reported that as of May 14th, he had only eight days' worth of supplies and no money at all. He faced a Texan army that was growing by the day with volunteers from the United States and a continued desire for revenge, particularly on the 600 or so prisoners of war they still held, including the boss. His army was broken in spirit despite the feelings of many of his officers. On May 24th, Filasola continued his retreat to Goliad and towards Matamoros in Mexico. The garrison at San Antonio joined him on their own without orders, and they collected sympathetic Tejanos on their way out of Texas. On the road to Matamoros, Filasola finally got orders from the inter-Mexican government that seemed to confirm his decision. Though he was ordered to hold Bejar, San Antonio, at all costs, the impression from the government was that it was Filasola's primary responsibility to do what it took to ensure Santa Ana's safety. Filasola would later argue that he had to abide by the terms of the treaty in order to do just that. At the end of May, the Mexican government learned from Urea that Filasola had abandoned the San Antonio and Goliad line and was retreating to Matamoros. Filasola was removed from command and ordered to return to Mexico City. Urea was placed in command, but curiously, he didn't turn back to Texas, but rather simply continued the retreat that he by now was vigorously arguing he had always opposed. In theory, Urea kept command of the army in order to plan a campaign to retake Texas, but the weather in 1836 continued to plague the army. In the end, it would be six more years before any military action against Texas would take place. In September 1836, Vicente Filasola was court-martialed for ordering the retreat from Texas, but it quickly became a contest of Urea versus Filasola. The younger officers in the army supported Urea, but the older officers supported Filasola and ended up exonerating him, determining that Filasola had not enjoyed, quote, total freedom of choice in his actions. The poor supply situations, low quality of his troops, and the large number of camp followers he was stuck with, as well as the awful weather conditions he endured, all worked to his credit, and his honor and reputation were restored. Filasola later returned to the Mexican army and served with distinction in action against France during the Pastry War and later in the Mexican-American War. He wrote a lengthy defense of the retreat which was actually translated and published by the Republic of Texas in 1837. Urea ended up attempting a revolt in 1838 that was ironically put down by a resurgent Santa Ana, who had returned to Mexico. 
He was eventually pardoned to fight the French, but he staged another rebellion against Santa Ana, and again, he got pardoned to fight the Americans. He and Filasola remained critical of each other for the rest of their lives. Best buds. Yeah. Amazingly, the most interesting commentary of Filasola's retreat to the Colorado comes from Santa Ana himself. After returning to Mexico, he wrote a manifesto defending his actions during the Texas Revolution. In this manifesto, full of contradictions, boasts, and exaggerations that we naturally expect from the Napoleon of the West, he managed to both condemn and condone Filosola's decision to retreat. He agreed that after the defeat at San Jacinto, it was necessary to suspend the army's operations, and he believed that Filosola had his best interests at heart when he hesitated to attack the Texans for fear that they would execute the supreme leader. However, Santa Anna remarkably stated that his orders to retreat were not expected to be obeyed, but rather were meant to give Villasola time to organize the attack, because surely the Texans would abandon their prisoners once they were confronted. He also manages to completely ignore any role that he'd actually played in the events resulting in his defeat at San Jacinto. Of course, this is just Santa Anna being Santa Anna, and it lends a lot of credence to the notion that Villasola knew that his boss would somehow manage to wind up back on his feet once everything had blown over. Unlike Urea, Filasola certainly never wound up on Santa Ana's bad side in the years after 1836. The irony of the retreat to the Colorado is that while it was a sound military movement, in many ways the eastern bank of the Brazos, which Gaona, Sesma, and parts of Urea forces were on, was a better military position for Filasola to have been in. An immediate attack may actually have stood a good chance of succeeding and defeating the Texans. Ultimately, they still would have had to deal with the deluge of April 26, no matter what side of the Brazos they were on. The loss of supplies and the terrible drain on the spirit of the Mexican soldiers from April 26 to May 9th was simply too much for the army to bear, and a full retreat all the way out of Texas was, in the end, inevitable. Ironically, the delay caused by the capricious Texas weather, which turned the prairie into a horrendous sea of mud, actually only served to speed the exit of Mexican forces from Texas. Man, what an awful way to be defeated. <laughs> well, this it's like is... We, we slaughtered your whole leading force, and yeah. then you're forced to maneuver through some of the worst terrain known to man. The summary for me of, of the Texas Revolution from the Mexican side is we were having a really good week, followed by <laughs> one terrible day. Um, yeah. Well, for, before we start, like, uh, let's give a quick tip of the hat uh, to Dr. Greg Dimmick. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, you heard us read a letter of his on the air. He's part of the San Jacinto Battlefield Conservancy, and uh, he's an active uh, historian. He's a full-time pediatrician, but this is his passion. And so he, uh, he actually wrote the book, Sea of Mud. Mm-hmm. And, and Dr. Dimmick also wrote uh, a translation and a commentary on Filasola's examination of Urea's diary. So Filosola wrote his own defense, but then he also took Urea's diary and picked it apart and refuted, or so supposedly refuted a lot of Urea's uh, statements. But at any rate, um, the archaeological study of the area around Eleanor's Tavern and the, the route of the army from the San Bernard to the Colorado River uh, Dr. Dimmick really has done a lot of study in that area and, and a lot of digs, and there's there's fascinating artifacts from the Mexican army showing that, yes, indeed, they abandoned so much equipment in this ground, this prairie, this 20-mile stretch of prairie, 
that is that is just a remarkable testimony to this really happening. Yeah, Greg lives down in um, he lives and practices down in Wharton, Texas. For those who know the area pretty well, so this is what we're talking about. This is all down in Wharton. Yeah, practically his backyard. So the amazing thing to me, the interesting thing to me, is this is really a a good expansion of what we talked about with Santa Ana and what we talked about with the Battle of San Jacinto. And it, it's been always a perplexing thing for me is there was, yeah, there was, there was several thousand Mexicans still in the state. And I always thought it was just simply the political power of Santa Ana that sort of just sent everybody back home that they were just like, ah, we better leave if he says so. But in fact, like there was a lot of desire to keep fighting, but there was a, there was a, there was a political conflict going on in the the hearts and minds of the Mexican generals, but then this this rainstorm, this deluge, just kind of sealed the deal. You know, it's it just forced forced the, their hands and said, you know, you don't you don't have anything to work with anymore. What's crazy to me is that we celebrate this resounding victory over San Jacinto, but. With Santa Ana at San Jacinto, but we made the point in there is like if they'd have had it together, like if you were a time traveler and you went back, you could easily say, "Look, we're going to regroup here, we're going to wait out the rain, and then we're going to go crush the Texas army because you're still thousands of guys." There was Mm -hmm. still like the fact that the forces got split, that it just it all fell apart in the fourth quarter for Santa Ana with with the with this strategy (laughs) that he fell right into. Sam Houston's trap, and these guys just cannot get. And, and that's the other part; these guys cannot get along. They are like yeah. two kids bickering in the back seat on a road trip. Yeah, it, it would have been really interesting. It is a good what if to say, well, yeah, let's say that they did, did still retreat, but they stopped at San Antonio and Goliad and just held the line there. What would Texas look like today if, uh, if the San Antonio River is the southern border of Texas? You know. That's that's sort of where the the Mexican Texas Cold War devolved into instead of the Rio Grande. I'm thinking that maybe we need to somebody out there needs to send a text to Harry Turtledove and say, <laughs> "Look, I have a great idea for some uh, speculative history fiction. Maybe something with yeah. time travelers that are, you know, what, that are weather masters. No, that were the weather masters. Yes, yeah. space." Space alien weathermasters came down and routed the Mexican army at the zero hour. <laughs> uh, I can, uh, you know, living in Texas, the weather is a fickle thing. I mean, you know, it is a it is an active character in all great stories of Texas history. Uh, just, you know, the story of Panamaria Maria that we talked about early on, you know, the, the poles coming to Texas, moving here and then being hit with 14 months of drought. Uh, one of the worst droughts in Texas history. <laughs> but if you live down in the Houston area, you've experienced torrential rain. I mean, you've, yeah. you've experienced a rain like this, but I can only imagine what it's like to be through eight days of just torrential hurricane-like downpour, just a nonstop deluge. Well, Greg kind of talks a little bit about that as well, um, in that many of the recruits of the, the the conscripts of the Mexican army were from the Valley of Mexico or from Central and northern Mexico, which were drier climates, um, and many of the Americans were from the southeast United States, and many of the Texans were from the southeast United States. And he points out that, that the Americans, by and large, were better used to this type of weather, and especially since that was generally the area where the Texas colonists lived and had been living for the last 20, you know, 10, 10 to 20 years, 
in that exact area. They were, you know, they weren't used to a deluge like that, but they were used to rain conditions like that in the spring. You know, our spring this this year, we actually had our last year had a lot of rain. So, you know, that's it's kind of a that was that was something that the Mexican army struggled with all the way from Mexico and all the way back was was dealing with the weather and not being able to handle some of the conditions that they were in. I'm sorry, but can you boil this down for me in an easily digestible Star Wars metaphor? <laughs> no. <laughs> and yes, the Ewoks knew the, oh. knew the forest. Oh, oh of course. The Ewoks knew the forest had been oh. <laughs> And the stormtroopers just Wait. did not. So the Texans are the Ewoks? Yes. Yes, exactly. Uh, your metaphor <laughs> falls apart. The scrappy Ewoks. <laughs> oh, jeez. With their six shooters. And they're oh. and they're and they're three foot long knives. Oh yeah. my gosh! All right, that wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave us some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. And if you'd like to support the show financially please visit us at patreon.com slash texaspodcast where you too can become a Texas Ranger and help make Texas history every day. Today's subject, El Mar de Lodo, is based on the research of Dr. Greg Dimmick, an avocational archaeologist and historian who wrote The Sea of Mud, The Retreat of the Mexican Army After San Jacinto, an archaeological investigation. You can buy the book right now on amazon.com. And we'd also like to thank Paul Schmel for helping us to research and write today's show. You can follow us individually, too. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two N's. And I'm Scotticus. We know you love the show. We know you love Texas. So get out there and do your duty. Tell each and every one of your friends. And please go and relieve... <clears throat> and please go and leave a review on iTunes. Because that really helps us out to find listeners just like you. We hope you'll join us next time, and remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway.